The following is a message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. More information about Parkview is available at www.parkviewchurch.org. Good morning. Welcome to Parkview. I'm Doug, one of the pastors here, and I just, I'm going to echo Sharon's greeting. It's awesome to have you guys here on a great event to celebrate. We had a great night last night, a good crew of folks here. Um, we started it off Friday night um, with a bang, literally. We had a, um, a powerful Good Friday service, but if you were here, as people were leaving, was it around 6 o'clock or so, uh, three deer got kind of caught up in all of this and got spooked by all the people leaving, so they took off running this direction and tried to fight their way through the glass, like right behind the student ministry booth out there just repeatedly, and so there was a lot of banging and commotion. It was pretty exciting, actually, and uh, two of the deer made it out on their own, but there's a guy named Jeff Maiman that goes here. He's now my new hero. He went and grabbed the third one and carried it out around the corner and then gave it a little kick and sent it on its way. So very impressive. All right. So Jeff, Jeff Maiman's my new hero. But um, what, this is such an awesome weekend, especially when you think about if we could just pull back and catch a glimpse globally of what's going on this weekend. Um, conservatively, there's about a billion people that say uh, that they follow Jesus. And so you can imagine all of them just gathering like we are to worship uh, the resurrected Jesus. And I've had the privilege of going to different parts of the world. I'm imagining the brothers and sisters I met in Africa where there's no walls where they meet. There's just a big thatched roof and they're in there just celebrating and some of the most vibrant worship I've ever been around are the believers in, in Japan and the big cities kind of packed into uh, where it's very expensive to get real estate packed into like apartment buildings or those kind of things or, or the believers in Ukraine that I've gotten to worship with just this is a huge deal and like at no other time in human history uh, the, the church is growing the number of people believing in Christ continues to expand it's an amazing it's, it's an amazing movement when you consider the beginning and it all hinged on what we're celebrating this morning of the resurrection of Jesus Christ what's also unprecedented and my heart goes out to these believers too is that persecution upon Christians is at an all-time high in fact, if this is an average hour, there will be 25 believers who will give up their lives simply because they are Christians, just this hour. And so our hearts go out uh, to our brothers and sisters that are worshiping courageously in the face of such intense persecution. And again, it helps you reflect on the blessing we've had as a country to worship and gather safely, minus a few deer trying to break into our church, right? So... If you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, you can swipe it on your phone if you want. If you don't, when you came in, you got a bulletin. And the verses in the Bible that we're going to read are in that bulletin. So you can look at that outline. We'll also have the verses on the screen here. At Parkview, we teach the Bible. So anytime I give my opinion, you just go whatever, okay? But anytime we see what the Bible says, we dial in because this is the Word of God. And the reason we picked 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is because that is uh, one of the, it's the longest chapter in the Bible that deals with the subject of the resurrection, okay? It was written by the Apostle Paul. He wrote it to a group of Christians who lived in the city of Corinth. At that time, it was a city of about 700,000 people. And Paul had lived there for 18 months and was teaching these people about Jesus and about his life and was teaching them about the gospel. And then Paul moved on to another city to do the same thing. And while he was away, he heard news about this church in Corinth, that they were struggling with some things. And one of their big questions was, did Jesus really rise again from the dead? 
Okay, so this might be a weekend where you're around some extended family, or if you're not, maybe think of somebody in your family that there's a certain topic that if this topic comes up, everybody goes, "Uh uh-oh, don't get them started. Like, don't, uh, here we go. Like, Uncle George is going to just go off on this. So for Paul, the resurrection would have been like that. You don't mess with the resurrection with Paul. In fact, this is the longest chapter of any of the letters that he wrote. Okay, this is just a massive um, barrage of truth about the resurrection. And the reason Paul was so passionate about it, it was because when he saw Jesus risen from the dead, it completely changed his life. If you know anything about the life of the Apostle Paul, there was a season of his life where he hated Christians. He hated the church. Uh, If he didn't actually himself kill Christians, he was complicit in that. He loved to see the church persecuted, almost like a a present-day ISIS terrorist. That was Paul until he saw Jesus resurrected from the dead, and it totally changed his life. Paul went from being one who killed Christians to one who was actually martyred for proclaiming the gospel. All right, just an amazing flip in his life. And so that was the turning point for him. So you don't mess with the resurrection with Paul. He's going to say, how can you say that there is no resurrection? And then this long chapter uh, ensued. And so what we're going to look at this morning, uh, it's a long chapter. We'll be out of here by 2.30, I promise, okay? So all your buffets and all that, they'll just wait, right? No, we'll, we'll get out of here at a good time. But the resurrection really confirms the foundation, the core of the Christian faith. And we're going to see this morning that the, that the resurrection just underscores the truths that Jesus defeated sins, that, he, that Jesus disarms our doubts, and that Jesus displays our hope. So before we start studying, I'd like us to pray. And I'm going to give you a chance just to pray quietly where you are. Atrium people, we love you. Glad you're there too. Online people, before we start, let's just, let's just pray. And pray is just you, prayer is just you quietly talking to God. And could you ask God to speak to you this morning? Because I believe he wants to. He loves you. And he wants, he wants to say some things to you. Could you pray that he will speak and that you will listen to him this morning? Let's do that. If you would, would you pray for me that I would speak clearly, not my words, but I would speak uh, the, the Bible to you this morning, that I would teach the Bible clearly and boldly. Jesus, thank you that you heard us. Thank you that you love us. And I pray that you would teach us this morning. In your great name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to have you read with me. Um, the verses are going to be up on the screen. Um, the last two services, I had to stop and start because they weren't reading with me. They were kind of mumbling. So don't make me do that here, okay? So we're going to read the first four verses of 1 Corinthians 15. I'm serious. Let's read them together, okay? Here we go. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Excellent. I want you to capture two things from what we just read. One is I want to grab the word gospel, okay? Gospel 
sometimes can be relegated today as kind of a religious word, a church word. In Paul's day, when he used that word, it had a broader context. Gospel basically meant a joyous announcement. It was used maybe in non-spiritual contexts, like if a king had just been anointed king and the people were excited, the proclamation of that would have been gospel, okay? Or um, if, if a country had just experienced victory at war, the announcement of that would have been gospel, good news, joyful news. I think of the time when a couple got engaged and they just kind of blasted into our house one late night, just excited to tell Lori and I the good news that they have gotten engaged, all right? So um, think of this as being a, a, being a joyful proclamation. That's the gospel. And so what is the content of that news? I mean, it's pretty simple. Uh, Paul just kind of defined it there. Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again on the third day. So one of my hardest things to do when I'm preaching is coming up with an outline that's in your bulletin. Man, you guys don't understand. Sometimes like the agony of like, how do you word this? And so my deadline was Wednesday at noon this week for an outline. And I went in to tell Jill was putting the bulletin together this week. I said, Jill, I'm really working on the outline. I'm sorry. She said, Doug, it's Easter. Jesus died. Jesus rose. Like what else do you need? And it's true. I should have just should have just done that, okay? But that's, that is the simplicity of this message that just elicits amazing joy. And Christ died for our sins. He was buried, and he rose. In fact, people that really understand uh, literature and, and language say that the way that those verses are laid out, that this very definitely was a creed. It was a statement that people would memorize and just hold up as like their core beliefs. And so they even trace this back to his as little as just a few years after the resurrection of Christ, that these were the core convictions of those early Christians. And sometimes you'll hear this time of year people say that the gospel is legendary, that it was made up hundreds of years later by followers of Jesus who were trying to kind of raise his image. But there's, there's so many evidences that this message was so early, even just a few years after the resurrection of Christ. And so that is the gospel. It's joyful news. Christ died for his sins. He was buried and he rose again from the dead. The other thing I want us to notice is that phrase, Jesus died for our sins. Again, sometimes we can just whip through that and go, okay, what, what else do you got for me? But let me just focus on a couple things there. The word our is very significant. When you, you remember who's writing this, this is the Apostle Paul, and let's say we are the recipients of this letter, we would have been the Corinthians. And for Paul to say he died for our sins, Paul would have been like our rock star, our spiritual like leader. Um, and for Paul to use our just really underscores that this issue of sin is really our problem, okay? And I, I don't know you all well. I know myself well. I'll put myself in the first of the line this morning. Like, who is the greatest sinner in this room. I know my history. I know my thoughts. I know my motives. And so just put me in the front. You guys can all fight for number two. Um, but that's kind of the point Paul is making, is that Christ died for our sins. We have all sinned against a holy God, the Bible says. And so sin is something we don't talk much about. We downplay it. We don't think we're that bad. Actually, we're in trouble because we have offended a holy God, the almighty God. We ignore him. We're ungrateful in spite of all the amazing things he does. We worship other things instead of him, the only one that deserves worship. He 
has communicated things he'd like us to do, and a lot of times we just blow those off. We do our thing instead of his thing. And so that's, those are all sin, evidences of sin in our lives. And sometimes when you think about us and God, that gets a little bit, maybe it's a little bit vague. Um, but so let's look at it on, on our level of relationships with other people, okay? People that God has created and loved. Um, we've been selfish. We have said horrible things about people. Um, we have gossiped. Um, just all kinds of things. We've been greedy. We've neglected needs of people around us. All those things are just evidences of the fact that we are broken and that we are sinful. And before a holy God, obviously God does love us. Huge theme of that at Easter. But what is also about true, true about God is that he is holy and that his wrath at our sin is, is valid. That we deserve to be punished for our sins. But again, the other key word, and that's short statement, Jesus died for our sins, is the word for, okay? There were different words that could have been used in the Greek language. The one specifically used there is the word that meant in place of, or instead of, or you think about the word substitute. That is, that is the essence of the gospel message, is that Jesus died for us, Okay, he came, he lived a perfect life. He didn't sin against the Father. He didn't sin against other people. He lived the, the only one that lived a perfect life. And yet he allowed himself to be put on the cross. And so when he died on the cross, he took the wrath of God. He took the, the guilt and the punishment for our sins on himself. Okay, he died in our place. He is our substitute. And so I know we might have some baseball fans in the house and maybe your team has made some trades in the off season and pretty soon here you're going to find out were those good or bad trades. I, just on a way bigger level, the best trade you can ever make is what Jesus is offering you. He's offering to take your sin, your punishment, your judgment, and in its place give you his life, give you forgiveness from God, give you a relationship with God. And that, see, that is good news, okay? And for you to understand that good news, you've got to understand the difference between religion and the gospel. Okay, this is in your notes there too. I've got a little religion versus gospel. So it's Easter, and a lot of people go, yeah, I'm pretty religious. I'm going to go to church on Easter. And I, I'm, again, thrilled that you're here. But we need to capture the, the massive difference between religion and gospel, okay? Religion is, we do this. We do some things. Uh, you heard this in Mary's story. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do better. I'm going to do all the things that God wants me to do, and I'm going to become a good person. Okay, so religion is on us. It's up to us. And that does not work, okay? That you cannot earn your way back to God. What we have done to God is so offensive, we can't work our way back. And religion just burns you out. There's, imagine being given a to-do list every day. And half the things on that list you hate doing, and the other things, the other half of that list you can't do. And you're given that list every day. Do this, do this, do this. And if you do those things, then God will be on your side. Then God will be good to you. And so any of us that are caught up in religion, you could even be in Parkview for many years and still be religious, trying to do it on your own, when actually the good news is that Jesus has done it for us. That's the gospel that you can't earn your way back to God, that the way you are connected with God is through putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Christ died for our sins. That's the gospel. See, that's, that's good news because I can't do it 
and that's going to burn me out. There is no hope in that. But in this, Christ has done it for me. That's how much God loved me, is he had Jesus die in my place so that I can be in relationship with him. So in your outline, kind of right about a third of the way down, I've got this question there. It's a diagnostic question. So when you go to the doctor and he really cares about your health, he's going to ask you questions so he can diagnose what's going on. Let me, as your pastor, and I care about you, I want to make sure you understand God and his love for you. Let me ask you this diagnostic question. What do you have to do to be saved, to, to be in relationship with God? What do you have to do about your sin problem? Okay, even if you have a pen, just take, take a little bit of time. Just write that out on your outline. Okay, what do you have to do to be saved? I was talking to somebody last week about this, a great person exploring all of this. And when I asked that person, uh, the answer was something like, well, I'm just going to be more like Jesus and really try to do the things that he's asking me to do. And do you hear the word do, do in there? And so anytime we find ourselves saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to, that's, guys, that's religion. And that's going to burn you out and that is not going to work. The best answer there, here's, let me give you, give you the answer to that diagnostic question is what must you do to be saved? You, you trust in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross to forgive your sins and to give you new life. You, you, you admit you're a sinner, you give Jesus your sin and you receive from him uh, the life that he offers you because he died for your sins. Um, you guys, in your bulletin, there's a card and we've been using those a couple times this last year, mainly to open up dialogue and so during the rest of my sermon, if you want to draw pictures on that, that's okay. But if you like, have some legitimate questions about the gospel or about the resurrection, if you could write those down, even as I'm talking, and just leave them on your chair, I, I would love to get back to you on that. Or if there's too many of them, I might have different pastors kind of begin a dialogue. But we'd love to be in conversation about this because this is crucial. This is, like Paul said, of first importance that you understand the, uh, the awesome message of the gospel that Christ has died for our sins, okay? So uh, the resurrection of Jesus um, is proof that Jesus has defeated our sins. Uh, the second thing is, when Jesus rose again from dead, that really disarmed our doubts, okay? And I love that as Paul continues in, in verse five in our passage, he's just told us Jesus died, was buried, rose again from the dead. Then he says this. He says that Jesus uh, appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, uh, then to the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Okay, so what Paul's doing now is maybe the question arises, how can Jesus do that? Like, how can Jesus restore my relationship with God and deal with my sins and give me new life? How can he do that? And, and how do I really know that Jesus rose again from the dead? So what's cool about the Bible is it'll never tell you, I'll oh, just believe it. The Bible does a great job of pointing us to evidence. And that is what Paul is doing here. That when he's mentioning eyewitnesses, this is like when you write a research paper and you put footnotes in there. You are sourcing where you are getting your information or you are pointing to others that can verify what you are claiming is true. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, hey, if you don't believe me, you could talk to Peter. You could talk to the disciples. The one I love is when he says, uh, Jesus appeared to 500 at the same time. And most of them are still alive. The whole point there is like, if you don't believe me, you've got a bunch of people you can go talk to. The other thing that's cool about this 
is the whole resurrection isn't like somebody went to Taco Bell too late at night, ate a bad burrito, and then had a dream. And in this dream, they saw Jesus alive. Like Jesus appeared continually and constantly and over a period of 40 days to over 500 people at one time. Like this is a real event. That's the point that Paul's trying to make here. And what I love too is I'm gonna tell you just two quick stories of two people in this list of who Jesus appeared to. The first one, I know the word says Cephas, that's Peter, okay? And so it's, it's awesome that Jesus appeared to Peter. If you know the Easter story, uh, right before Jesus was crucified, um, Peter was probably the brashest of the disciples. Jesus, I'll do anything for you, man. I'm your man. I'm there for you, Jesus. That kind of guy. And if you know Peter's story, right before the crucifixion, he denied Jesus, one time even cursing that he didn't even know who Jesus was, okay? Peter had the epic fail in his relationship with Jesus. How powerful do you think it was for Peter that Jesus didn't just cut him off the list and blow him off, but Jesus went and appeared to Peter? And so I know in this room this morning and online and all of that, there are many stories in this room of people that have dropped the ball on God and on Jesus that we've, been, we've had our own epic fails What's really cool is that Jesus is a savior who is into giving do-overs. And I think as you read through Jesus after he was resurrected, the time he spent with Peter, Jesus affirmed Peter. Jesus assured Peter that he was with him, that he was still on the team. And so if that's anywhere in your story, please know that that is the heart of Jesus with you too. He loves to give do-overs, okay? So the other one I want to note is the guy named James. Okay. There's a couple of Jameses in the New Testament. Sometimes reading the Bible, you've got to have a glossary. Okay, who's this guy and who's that? This James, um, this might be a new term for some of you guys. This James uh, was the half-brother of Jesus. Okay, so Jesus had Mary, Virgin Mary's his mom, and God, through the Holy Spirit, impregnated Mary, and Jesus came, fully God, fully man. After Mary had Jesus, she had other children with her husband, Joseph. And so James is one of those so Jesus' half-brother, okay? So can you imagine the pressure of Jesus being your older brother? Okay, so like, why can't you be like your brother? <laughs> you know, there we go. So, and I don't know if that was the source of it, but whenever you read about Jesus' brothers and sisters in the Gospels, they were not fans of Jesus. They were not on Team Jesus. In fact, they were opposed to Jesus thinking he was the Messiah, they, there's times where they try to just pull him away and walk him away, kind of walk him off the ledge. Like, Jesus, you're going nuts here. Like, you're, who do you think you are? You're not the Messiah. So they were not on his team. And what's interesting is that Jesus, after his resurrection, went and appeared to his brother. Now, if this, was, uh, you know, if this were us, that appearance might have been something like, told you, bro, like I've been telling you, like here I am, you never believe me, but I'm alive and I, you know, in your face, that kind of thing. I, I think with that pictures for us, because I know there may be some skeptics in this room this morning that have said some pretty blunt and harsh things. I think of all the people that rejected Jesus in his earthly ministry, wouldn't you think the wounds that came from his own family would have hurt the most? And yet you just see the heart of Jesus here, again, not just blowing them off, but appearing directly to James. And that appearance just changed James's life. You can read in Acts chapter one, and then James became part of the early church, the first group of believers. And as you continue to th read through Acts, James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Like he went totally on board for his brother, being the Messiah, as soon as he saw him resurrected, okay? So um, 
So amazing evidences for, for the resurrection. Guys, I would encourage you this, that um, we're going to just talk briefly about a couple more evidences for the resurrection. If you're at all skeptical about Christianity this morning, I would say this is the place to look. Answer the question, did Jesus really rise again from the dead? Because if he didn't, the Bible says that if, if Christ is still dead, then our faith is futile, um, that we are to be pitied more than all people, like we're stupid. If we are trying to live a Christian life, if Jesus isn't alive, okay? So if your questions are about Christianity and science or about the Bible, I think those are valid questions. But really, if Jesus didn't rise again from the dead, who cares what Christians think about evolution or about any of the other topics? Go for the jugular. Like, go for the, go for the issue that really matters. Did Jesus rise again from the dead? And I am very passionate about this, too. I was raised... Uh, in a Christian home. I was raised believing in the Bible. I had Christian friends in high school. I had a great setup. And when I came to the University of Iowa my freshman year, I was the only Christian on my dorm floor. I didn't know that many other Christians. And so, and I, in that time, I was hearing a lot of different worldviews. And I remember going to bed some nights and not sleeping, just thinking, did I waste 18 years of my life believing something that might not be true? And as I began to dig for myself and started owning my own faith, it was, it was this, this topic of the resurrection that really just, again, ignited my assurance in the truths that I had been raised in, okay? So let me just give you a couple more. Um, uh, the, the evidence of the empty tomb is very powerful, that nobody ever produced the body of Christ. Right when the whole Christian movement launched in Jerusalem, it was right in the same area where Jesus um, was buried for three days and rose. The easiest way to wipe out the Christian movement would have been just to present the body of Jesus. Hey, game over. <laughs> you guys are saying he's resurrected. Uh-uh, we got the body right here. So, but, but the tomb um, is, was empty. We were told where Jesus was buried Joseph of Arimathea owned the tomb. It would have been very easy to find where that was, where his land was, where that tomb was, and nobody produced the body. In fact, some people have noted that when religious leaders died in Jesus' day, often the place where that body would be laid would become a shrine, a place of worship that people would come and visit. And even today, leaders in other religions, like Abraham's tomb is in Hebron, that Buddha's tomb is in India, that Muhammad's tomb is in Medina, there still are places of veneration and worship because of where spiritual leaders are laid. There was never any place like that for Jesus. Okay, even though the Christian movement exploded, there was no place where they all went to, to pay homage to his body because there was no body. That's a, that's a cool one. Another one is, I'll just go quickly on this one, just the start of a new movement that based um, its core conviction on a resurrection. In Jesus' day, the, there was two pr predominant cultures. The Greek culture didn't believe in resurrection of a body, and the Jewish culture was kind of split some of them didn't believe in resurrection at all. Some believed resurrection was going to happen at the end of time. But nobody expected or nobody thought that a Messiah would rise again. In fact, Jesus told his followers several times, hey, for three days I'm going to be dead, and then I'm going to rise again from the dead. They, it was so foreign to them, they didn't catch it, okay? Like you would have expected if they would have heard that, Jesus crucified. Then on day three, it's like Peter saying, guys, party, let's go to the tomb, he's coming out. Like it's going to be awesome. Get your phones ready, let's film this, it's going to be powerful. Like nobody was there expecting it. It just took them totally off guard. And so to, to, to come up with an explanation, well, how did this movement launch so quickly? Um, 
without such a significant event as the resurrection. There's even uh, non-Christian uh, and extra-biblical historians uh, from way back in the day. Tacitus was a Roman historian. Josephus was a Jewish historian. Are both mentioning that there was this movement that started because of a resurrection. And the, the biggest one for me is the story of changed lives. That, that like I mentioned, Paul you look at the disciples, how radically they lived differently after they saw the resurrection. That 11 of those guys, 11 of the 12 died for saying that they saw uh, Jesus alive. And so what are the odds that 11 of 12 guys are going to die for a lie or something that they made up? And so um, there are many other things you could look at. In fact, if you're in Iowa City on April 7th, there's um, one of the uh, foremost New Testament scholars in our country is going to be on campus defending evidences of the resurrection. So there's Dr. Gary Habermas. So there's that. If you're visiting with us today, you have some questions, we've got some resources for you for free. We'd love you to, if we've still got, I think we've still got some out there. Part few people hold back. If you're new with us and our guests, we'd love you to take, there's one called A Case for Easter that goes into a lot of evidence about the resurrection. But guys, this is a huge topic. If, if Jesus isn't alive, the whole Christian faith's kind of a joke. But if he is, it radically means two profound things for us before we go. Because the resurrection of Jesus displays our hope. One hope it displays is that death is not final. Okay? Look at um, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 20, when it says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits was a concept used in agriculture in that day that the first fruit was the first of the crop that would come out, but the expectation was a huge crop would follow. And so that's the picture there. Just like Jesus was the first fruit of resurrection, now there would be many who would follow. And you see throughout the New Testament that those who put their faith in Jesus Christ are assured that this life is not all there is. And Jesus models that hope for us. He displays that hope for us. And so, guys, there's a whole different way to live when you know this life is not all there is. There's a new confidence. There's a new peace. There's a new um, just prioritization of your life, like what really matters and what really doesn't, doesn't. If this life isn't all there is, if there's an eternity waiting for me, that changes everything, okay? And the confidence and the joy, the perspective and suffering, the perspective as we approach our own deaths, it's just completely different when you know the hope that there's life after this, after this life, that life after death is a reality. I was thinking through in this last year or so, uh, either the funerals I've been a part of or situations that I was praying for vested in. And this struck me when I just thought the ages of the people that were involved in this last year, like 14, 21, 22, 28, 42, 50, 73, 96. It covers most of us right there, right? Um, and as you enter into those situations, um, there's grieving for sure. But there's something powerful about grieving with those who have hope that they know this isn't all there is. It's still, it's still brutally hard at times. But yet, I, there's, I just can't explain it sometimes that, that there's still yet a confidence and there's a joy when we know that this life is not all there is and when that hope is a reality. And so I know Easter is a time where we're together as families and 
uh, and I don't know who it is in your family that asks the awkward question that needs to be talked about, but as everybody's gathered, this is a good one to ask. Like, what is your hope for life after this life? Is your hope in Christ? And what a gift to your family it is that they know for sure that you have trusted Christ, that you have accepted the gift of eternal life, okay? So as you're together in this season, in this weekend, just confirm that with each other. Where are we standing with this? Where is our hope for life after death? The one other thing that Jesus' resurrection um, displays for us is that we can live now. Our hope is that there is a new life now because Christ is resurrected. Um, let me read Romans 8, 11, and 13. It says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Guys, there's an amazing promise in there that when you believe in Christ, the same power, the same Holy Spirit who rose Jesus from the dead now lives in you. That may be a new concept to you, but you heard John and Mary talking about the power of the Spirit of Jesus. That's what the Bible promises, that the resurrected, resurrection of Jesus shows us that there can be change in our lives, that God loves to restore what is broken in our lives. Jesus' body was broken on the cross, but then God restored it, and he displayed that for his followers. So that, that same principle is true for us. Um, I'm speaking this morning to some people that have um, some, some brokenness in relationships. There might be some marriages that are battling this morning, some parent-kid issues going on this morning. Um, God loves to step in and restore broken relationships. There, there may be some addictions in this room this morning, some habits we're just trying to shake. Um, there's some sin patterns in our lives that we just, you know, you heard Mary just say, I was trying harder. I was trying harder. It was just not working. There's a whole new way that in the gospel, you have new weapons, you have new power to fight sin in your life. And so you can be set free. In fact, did you see that in verse 13? It said um, that if we live by the flesh, we will die. It's like you might be living here, but are you really living the life God's got you to live? You're trying it on your own. You're cranking it out. It says, but um, if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's, that's going to be our theme the next six weeks. We're going to take um, what's, what's often called the seven deadly sins, and we're going to show how the power of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, helps you fight those sins in your life so that you can be set free to truly live. So the resurrection matters now, not just, oh, someday it'll get me to heaven, but the resurrection displays a power that's available to us that I wonder if many of us even know exists, that there's that possibility of really coming alive because of the resurrection of Jesus. So let me just wrap this up. And um, if you came in this morning and you said, yeah, I know Jesus rose again from the dead. I know he's alive and all that. Let me just ask that question. Like, are we, are we living like we have a risen savior like do we do we know about it or are we truly experiencing that he is alive is there hope is there is there victory over sin is there is there a joy and a confidence that comes from just you know the risen risen savior and i i praise god for this church i see many good stories i see many examples of people that are clinging to this truth and the things it's propelling you to do on behalf of others it's awesome you guys it's a privilege to pastor this church. And again, any of those people would say, I'm not the hero. Jesus is the hero. He has propelled me 
to live a life like this. But if any of us are, are new to this, again, I just say, man, write us some questions on that card and we can start a conversation or go talk to somebody with a green badge this morning. We'd love to have a conversation. Grab any of the resources um, or come back in the next weeks and, and explore with us how the resurrected Jesus can help you fight and kill sin in your own lives. So let me pray. Let me pray for us. So Jesus, again, we're, we're honored to just celebrate this awesome uh, weekend with believers all around the world in this momentous event that you truly came back to life. And I thank you for the good news that's there for all of us. Jesus, that you died for our sins, that we can hope, have hope after this life, we will live forever, that we can have hope in this life, that you will show us how to truly live. You can help us defeat the sin in our lives. And God, I just pray that we would just take what you wanted us to learn. We asked you at the beginning of this sermon, teach me something, Jesus. I pray that we would take what you taught us and put it into practice. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Parkview's mission is to love God, love others, and serve the world. If you live in the Iowa City area, we invite you to join us in person for services every weekend. You can get service times and directions, download messages, and get news and information about Parkview Church by visiting www.parkviewchurch.org. You can also contact us by phone at 319-354-5580 or write to us at Parkview Church, 15 Foster Road, Iowa City, Iowa, 52245.